Hi there, and welcome back to Taming the Titans, a podcast from human rights organization Article 19. I'm Emily Hart, and in this, our final episode, we'll look at the global movement to bring big tech down to size and the momentum building to get our human rights recognized and protected. In last week's episode, episode four, we talked about Big Brother, i.e. the state, versus Big Other, i.e. Big Tech. Today we'll be talking about a crucial third force, civil society, groups of citizens advocating for human and democratic rights and for the good of societies. But it's not easy for civil society's voice to get heard. Obstacles are substantial, facing extremely powerful and notoriously secretive companies with huge budgets for lobbying and influence in very high places. Also, we face strong resistance from private and public enforcers who are reluctant to open up the dialogue to other stakeholders, especially civil society groups. Today, I'm chatting with experts from two top consumer rights organisations, one from each side of the Atlantic, Vanessa Turner and Camila Leche-Contri. Vanessa is the Senior Advisor for Competition at Bayouk, the European Consumer Organisation. It's an umbrella group for 46 independent consumer organisations from 32 countries, defending the interests of European consumers. Vanessa focuses on ensuring that consumer interests are taken into account in EU competition policy and enforcement, particularly in digital markets, having also worked in the European Commission and the USA's Federal Trade Commission. Camila is a lawyer in the Brazilian Institute of Consumer Protection, working on telecommunications and digital rights. Camila also coordinates the Study Centre on Competition Law and Digital Economy at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. A global debate is coming. Legislators and regulators in different parts of the world will need to adapt emerging regulatory tools and concepts to their context and markets. Though the companies are the same giants across the globe, taking account of specific political, economic and social contexts will be crucial to these new frameworks and rules really working and working for people in those jurisdictions. Equally crucial will be for civil society to be ready and properly equipped to advocate for the needs of people especially in a context where the huge lobbying power of companies like Alphabet and Meta create a massive inequality of arms, and in situations where regulators and enforcers will have less resources and tools than the DMA and its enforcers can provide in the European context. So what can we learn from the process of the Digital Markets Act negotiations, and how can it be replicated in other contexts? In Europe, the DMA was the first time we had civil society engaged in discussions around market regulation frameworks, and a huge amount was learnt, particularly around how civil society and grassroots groups can prepare and harness that new knowledge and experience in upcoming battles to be fought on battlefields other than the European Union. So how might other jurisdictions actually achieve more or go further in meeting human rights requirements when regulating digital markets? And how might those negotiations differ or require different tools? Let's get into it with Vanessa and Camila. A huge welcome to you both. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for that. Happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So tell me, Vanessa, what has been the role of civil society, of non-governmental organizations in the advocacy around the Digital Markets Act? Well, I think looking at the kind of history of this proposal, the initial proposal was far too business focused, so business user focused in the DMA terminology mm. and didn't really focus enough on, on, on people or consumers or to use the DMA terms, the end users. So 
civil society work pretty intensively to try and change that focus a bit more towards the end users than, than was the case in the original proposal. In terms of what impact that had, I think maybe this, this does illustrate it to a certain degree. So if you look at the original text of the, of the DMA, the proposal had like 120 references to business users and 109 to end users. But when we look at the final text, which was overall a lot longer anyway, the number of reference to business users was 193 and to end users was 237. So in that sense, I think well, yeah. um, the presence of end users increased. So it's not necessarily scientific statistic, but more generally, end users got greater recognition as well in terms of um, fairness in recitals, not only referring to business users, but to end users. And end users got explicit rights in the DMA that they didn't have previously. So overall, I think that was the contribution of civil society. Yeah, that, that feels really big. And was that difficult to achieve? Was there space made for those organisations in the process? Well, I think that depends. It was not always easy for civil society to get to be heard. And bearing in mind the resources of, of big tech who, or, or, or more generally of other business users were so much greater than civil society's resources. It wasn't necessarily an easy task, but it required a lot of perseverance and um use of the tools that we have and building coalitions where relevant sharing you know, intelligence and input and knowledge and expertise, which went some way to uh, enabling us to get a, a voice to be heard. Because it does really feel, certainly in terms of resources, like a, like a David and Goliath fight. Absolutely. Yes. I think, I mean, uh, in terms of the process, during the legislative process, where there were two uh, legislators that one had to speak to during the process, the first was the European Council, the Council Working Groups, uh, and on the other side, the European Parliament. And, and my personal experience was the European Parliament were much more open to civil society and to NGOs than the Council was. And that actually is backed up by some research done by uh, an organisation called Corporate Europe Observer. Um, in July of 2021, so it's uh, a, a while ago, but nevertheless, that showed that it was much more easy for corporate interests to be heard than for, for CSO interests to be heard. Uh, and they found out that, for example, in terms of being able to meet with people in, in the council, for every one meeting that an NGO got, there were 13 business meetings. So it, it's not necessarily wow. easy, but um, we made the best of it. <laughs> Yeah, which which I think begs the question, Camila, if this is how tough this discussion looks in Europe, what does it look like in Latin America? Where does Latin American civil society stand? I mean, has this discussion started to take momentum? And are the companies listening if it has? Yeah, that's a great question because we are looking for Europe and we are getting inspired by Europe, but we are still building maturity on that. So we are building capacity also in terms of competition law in Brazil, like uh, CSO doesn't have a strong background on that. Mm. And we are networking with European um, CSOs to build this capacity, but we are getting to a more interesting space and more awareness on this issue. But we, we might face similar issues in terms of companies pressure when we are discussing this this future bills. That's certainly something that I've come across in, in lots of discussions I've had around this issue is that expertise is not evenly distributed. And when we're talking about competition law, about acts like the Digital Markets Act, expertise is distributed between regulators 
And then a lot of it is in those companies. And given the resources that those companies have, they can afford to really hire out the entire market of people with that expertise. So I suppose the question to both of you is at a global level, how do we empower and and upskill? Though I kind of hate the word. How, how do we bring that expertise to people, to civil society, in order to invigorate this debate with the, the issues that really matter, which are people or end users, as we call them? I think it is a big challenge, in fact. And one of the ways that we tried to level the playing field was to combine different skill sets from different um, NGOs. So because, I guess, by way of example, the DMA is has a lot of competition law uh, elements in it, although clearly it's not only competition law. In fact, it consists of competition law, consumer law, and data protection law, mm. to name just some of the, the three key elements. Well, what we tried to do from the civil society perspective was to combine our knowledge. And I, I'm personally a competition lawyer, so my focus is that, but I work for a consumer organisation, so I could call on colleagues in, with consumer law specialism. But because it's also very technical, we also shared approaches with um, more digital-facing civil society organisations who could come in on more technical topics, for example, uh, interoperability, um, to give their expertise. So although we didn't have everything in-house, we were able to combine or with kind of other freedom of speech type issues with other organisations as well, privacy issues, human rights type issues, so that each, um, by sharing that expertise on a particular element of the of the DMA, like that got us there, uh, at least to a certain degree. Yeah, key point for me too, uh, We it is important to share knowledge between different fields and also different regions of the world. Like, I think that it is really important to understand what are similar issues, what are different issues, for example, in the north and the global south. And you framed the question in a right sense. Like, at the end, we're talking about technicalities on competition, on data protection, on interoperability. But at the end, we are seeking to protect consumers. We are seeking to protect data subjects. We are seeking to protect citizens on the digital sphere. So we have a common background that we need to gather for this common goal. Right. And it's such a nexus of issues, as you pointed out, Vanessa, around this common goal. It's so many types of law. You know, we are, even 20 years later, slightly scrambling to conceptually adapt to the challenges that the arrival of the internet has thrown at us. So I think going back slightly to the DMA, is it the right tool? because we know that at a global level, legislation and regulation from Europe can just be copy-pasted, right, into so many different jurisdictions, sometimes maybe without the due care or adaptation that is required. But is it even the right starting point? Is it a good launching point for other countries? Can it be? I think I would say yes, I think it is. Now, before the DMA was born, there was a, probably a couple of years of discussion all around the globe, actually, on the problems that exist in digital markets uh, and the fact that they're not working as they should for, for people um, because there's too much power and the ability to foreclose choice um, by, by preventing competitors from entering in an effective way to give consumers or users choice, including you know, privacy respecting options, those kind of things. So, and we saw that the competition law and trust law enforcement was just too slow and too complex to deal mm. with these things. I mean, if I look at, say, some of the, the Google cases, the Google Shopping or Google Android cases, they've been going for around 10 
years and they're still not over. So, and that's, you know, if you don't find a solution for 10 years, there's an awful lot of harm that can be done right. to, to people. So in the sense that the DMA actually is so-called ex-ante legislation sets up rules where or, or obligations and prohibitions on gatekeepers in advance, mm. it should be easier to enforce and I mean, set the clear rules and allow for less gaming than can be done um, by very powerful companies in, in 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 competition or antitrust cases. So from that perspective, yes, I think it is the right tool because it, it doesn't have those downsides that antitrust law has. On the other hand, that doesn't mean to say we don't need antitrust law as well because it's it only covers a certain number of, of areas. So we need to have the ability to deal with other problems as well. Um, is it perfect? No, I'm sure it's not perfect. I'm sure we could have done things differently and better in, in, in some ways, but it's a start and it's the first piece of comprehensive legislation anywhere in the world to actually do it. And I think you've got to start somewhere uh, and you can learn by doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think in that sense, it's it is something that that other ju jurisdictions could look at. I mean, other people may go in different ways and the EU has its specificities. And the proof of the pudding will really be in the eatings and which we still have to see in terms of implementation. That's a whole other area. But I do think it is a, a good starting point and worth other people looking at. And there has been some overlap between the DMA and some of the, the, the maybe the less comprehensive proposals that we've seen in, in the US or in, in South right. Korea. Uh, the UK is um, looking at a sort of similar regime. It's it may be more regulatory in its approach. Well, at least if we'll see if it's if it sees the light of day, which I hope it will. But um, mm. in terms of the the type of issues that are arising, I think there's quite a lot of coherence across the the world. But so it's I think it's a good starting point. And if you wait for perfection, will you know more time will go by and uh, the markets will become even more difficult to to break into. And I would highlight two issues, like it is important to have a regulation and I do agree that we don't have to wait for perfection. In other way, we have two issues that we don't have to use that against reforming antitrust when it's needed, as Vanessa mentioned. And we also have to be concerned because we are dealing with dynamic markets, so we might need to update this regulation soon. So this is related to the the imperfection of all of it. Like we have to see the effects so we can understand how to update it. But right now it's really important to have more certainty, to bring more certainty and to to have a complementarity on, on what antitrust is already doing. There may be, may be one other point, if I could add, which I should have, should have mentioned, is that, um, and I sort of mentioned it earlier, what I think is also quite interesting about the DMA, it's, it is a kind of holistic out of silo type approach to digital markets mm. so it isn't just calling on antitrust principles but also looks at uh, data protection and there is quite a, a strong link to the provisions of the European data protection law of the GDPR um, but also looks at, at consumer law principles and importantly actual behavior of people as being a relevant factor in how you analyze companies conduct um, so uh, I think this is the first time that explicitly in European legislation there there is a recognition that user behavior can be utilized, exploited by digital companies to influence users to make decisions in the interest of the companies rather than the user's own interests. So there's quite a strong anti-circumvention clause which makes it clear that things like 
so-called dark patterns or other user interface techniques. Uh, so how people behave in the real world has to be taken account into the legislation. And, and that, I think, is quite innovative. And I, and I hope that that's followed in other areas as well. I mean, we know that that, I mean, the, the issue of dark patterns also has been looked at in the US in data protection law, for example. But to have it enshrined, I think this is the first European law where it's explicitly recognised the importance of, of user behaviour. Um, I don't think it'll be the last, but I think that's an important innovation mm. that recognises how, how things work in the real world. And if I may add, we are talking about on how uh, antitrust can be reformed, how antitrust can be used. I, I would like to give two examples. One of them is to incentivize the use of interim measures. So we are criticizing the uh, how long uh, antitrust analysis take and interim measures, which are temporary measures, can solve these issues. So antitrust authorities can use that. But as Vanessa mentioned, we are not talking only about competition. We are talking about competition, data protection, consumer rights. So we need also a cooperation between these authorities. I would incentivize that. Mm. So let's talk a bit about the next phase, um, because Vanessa, you're, you've said, and it's been very clear from the conversations we've had during the series, a lot of the, of the outcome of the DMA rests on implementation. We know we've got a really groundbreaking document. What we don't know quite yet is is how it's going to look in the implementation. Um, not to speculate too wildly, but Vanessa, how, how do you see implementation going down and what will be the major challenges, certainly in terms of the power imbalances um, that we have between these huge global corporations and the regulators in Europe? Yeah, I think this is going to be a, a key question. I don't think there's any doubt that there's enough political will to try and make this work in the sense that the, the speed of the adoption of the of this legislation and the wide support it got across from the whole political spectrum um, in Europe was was quite striking. Um, so from that perspective, it's a good starting point. I also think that the European Commission will have no hesitation to implement and enforce it. It has kind of 27 member states behind it. So it's not going to have the similar problems to the GDPR, mm. where you rely on small member states where big tech happened to be based, which didn't always have the ability or resources to, to do the enforcement. So I don't think that's going to be a problem as such with the European Commission. And it has quite strong sanctioning powers. However, mm. and I I think this is a really big however or maybe there are two but one particular one is will it have will the European Commission have enough resources as you hinted these are very powerful companies who are on the are subject to the obligations and prohibitions and knowing the kind of resources that that those companies have at their disposal to to fight for example in antitrust cases mm. and the unlimited resources they have uh, the question for me is will the regulator will the european commission have first of all sufficient quantities of resources um and i think there's still a question mark on that i mean they're clearly making some progress in the last couple of weeks but uh, i still think there's a question mark and then the second thing is will they also have the right type of resources at their disposal i mean for for the implementation of this law, we don't just need lawyers. Uh, to my mind, we also need people with technical expertise, so computer scientists, data scientists, AI specialists, um, people who can understand algorithms, and also behavioural economists, people with behavioural insights, to go back to the point I was making earlier, to look at how user interface design can, can impact uh, on the effective implementation of the regulation. So um, I think... That's going to be quite a challenge. Um, and judges are another element, of course. Yes. You know, who 
who has been training the judges, which up until this point has been quite a big question in terms of competition law, from what I understand. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, we don't have a specialised competition court. I mean, well, not that this could go to a specialised competition court. It will go through the, the, the European court systems. Uh, well, actually, let me take one step back. At the European level, it, it, any challenges, which there will certainly be um, from big tech, I think, or from the gatekeepers, uh, for the reasons we discussed before, those will go up to our European courts in Luxembourg. But also the DMA does allow for enforcement, private enforcement, both by business users and end users in national courts. And none of these are going to be specialist courts. So for the courts to understand what's going on, I think it would be useful for them to have some objective training. Right. And the the objective training that might easily jump in, and I have I have two fingers up in quote marks that you can't tell in a podcast, the objective training that might leap in here, the funding is much more easily found in those companies than it is amongst, for example, civil society or those institutions, which were already scrambling to compete in terms of, you know, even salary offerings to the best people in the area. I think that's certainly true. Resources can take your unlimited financial resources can take you a long way. Now, I mean, to my mind, there is, um, well, it is legitimate for companies to try and make their views known. But I think it is also essential that there is absolute transparency on who is financing what, uh, which I think is not something that has always been the case when views are being expressed or purported implementation of uh, laws is 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 said to be you know this is the way it should be done one should know who is paying for the person saying that um, whether it's an academic an economist or a lawyer and that's not always the case and I think if you have transparency on the receiving end you can then put what you're being told into context if you don't have transparency then there is a chance that you'll be influenced without realizing who's actually behind what you're being told absolutely well, that's important yeah, and I have to say, if if we've got political will and I think good faith in the European Union and resources are a question in the rest of the world, we're looking at an even more complicated equation, right? Because there is not as much maybe political will at an institutional level, particularly in the global south, and there may not be good faith. We've got regimes that may well want to control these companies for reasons that involve even more abuse of the rights of their citizens. And then even if they did have good faith, the resources, as compared to the resources of those companies, they're looking pretty feeble. Camila, how do you think um, this kind of model can be applied to, to countries outside of Europe, given the difficulty of that equation? So Vanessa was mentioning that it was important for the DMA to be applied by the European Commission in comparison to the GDPR, for example, and we wouldn't have this on, for example, in Latin America. Every national authority would have to apply that. Every national parliament would have to, to make this legislation. So the bargaining power of these countries on the global south are way lower than the, the European Union. So it's a challenge on how we develop these laws in global south countries and we also we also have the issue like how to bargain with the parliament to discuss digital markets issue when people are facing a lot of other challenges so we have the pressure of other priorities we have the pressure of big companies we also have like 
industrial policy pressure. Countries from the global south relies on the technology made on, on the global north. So these countries might be afraid on creating these kinds of law. So yeah, it's a challenge. The the companies pressure on these countries are way, way strong. Mm. So how can civil society work to counteract those powers or to even inject a third force between government and, you know, what is effectively highly powerful, not always very transparent lobbying? How can this third party, you know, this genuinely good faith citizen representing group, how can they wiggle in there? How does one gain the power to be heard in that discussion? Yeah, like, it's the million euros answer. Like it, it is hard. Uh, capacity building is key for us. Like we have to have strong CSOs in terms of knowledge and in terms of also financing on these issues. So I was mentioning other priorities, but we also have to prioritize these issues because it affects the whole population. It is important to build, for example, coalitions with other countries. Yeah, it would be important to exchange with other organizations. So Vanessa, what what learnings from from you know what seems to me an an incredibly successful struggle against a huge not opponent but a huge uh, force during the DMA? What from that process do you think might be applied outside of Europe? I think joining forces on the CSO on the NGO side can be can be very useful for the DMA or indeed for for in other areas as well um, in terms of for example, information sharing on what's working and what isn't working, both in kind of substance terms and also tactical terms. And then potentially joint initiatives where there are shared issues around the world. Now, maybe not so much on on legislation as such. I mean, perhaps it would be helpful for those of us who have gone through the process of the DMA to, if there are specific issues, to share our experience with um, other jurisdictions, if there is, uh, if there are initiatives taking place in in a similar area, so I guess, and then yeah, if if it makes sense to do joint initiatives, maybe I mean they're more probably outside of the DMA area, but in things like competition or enforcement or merger control, where you've got, uh, in this instance, tech companies uh, merging uh, across uh, many jurisdictions there. There is some merit in in, in sharing uh, information and potentially joint initiatives where there is a joint interest, because we know that um, you know the regulators are all talking to each other as well. So and, and the businesses are talking to each other across the globe. So it does make sense for civil mm. society to to talk and where where it makes sense to actually do joint efforts. I mean, recognizing obviously that there are systemic differences between different jurisdictions, but you know those aside. I guess we have to try and mirror as far as possible the the enforcers uh, and the business side. Mm. Like a platform, right? It, it It is great to share this knowledge between the jurisdictions, to understand the differences, but also to understand the similarities on that. And we are trying to do that. that we are always in contact with BILC, with Article 19, and it's great to exchange this knowledge. It, it is really important, and we can see the differences in, in Brazil, like... In, in Latin America in general, on how civil society organizations are getting stronger on this holistic approach as it's posed on the DMA as a consequence of the sharing of knowledge with other organizations. Great. That feels really optimistic to me. So what are what are the big next steps that are going to be needed to to weave together global civil society around this issue? Because we're talking about an issue that is you know, the nexus of so many fields traditionally, 
And, you know, the DMA, is, as you've said, Vanessa, is also the nexus of so many different fields. So it feels like we're meeting the challenge with an appropriate response. How do we make that response global? How do we create a global civil society response to that challenge? We have to institutionalize this, uh, this sharing that we are already doing, and this requires resources too. Mm. Well, I guess resources is always going to be an issue on this one. Uh, so um, resources and expertise yeah. um, to try and you know get somewhere close to to the to the business size because they have such an information ad advantage over us in terms of where they can get their sources from. And so I think sharing to the extent possible, but it would be great to have more resources to do it because I think, as you said earlier, it's a bit of I feel almost every day that this is a David and Goliath um, task. But, you know, David can sometimes win. <laughs> <laughs> That seems like a lovely, positive place to end for me. Um, thank you so much to both of you for coming on. It's been great to talk. Thank you for that. Thank you for the invitation to join you. So that's all for series one of Taming the Titans. From the neoliberal consensus, which brought us big tech monopolies, right through to the new ideas which might help us tame those same titans. This is a debate which is only just beginning, though it is quickly gaining momentum and the stakes are high. It's an urgent conversation on which nothing short of our most fundamental rights depend. If you're interested in these issues, check out Article 19's policy briefs. There's loads of meaty analysis which gets right down into the detail of issues like interoperability and market regulation. So for now, thanks for listening. I'm Emily Hart, and I'll catch you all next time.